Welcome to the Cap City Church podcast. This is the recording of our Sunday message. We pray that you are encouraged and challenged as you listen to this. Enjoy. What does it mean to live in the fullness of God's life and promise here and now in such a powerful way that it spills over not only into the lives of the people around us, but it spills out over into an eternity of God's heavenly presence? What does it mean to live in the promises of light and life in all of God's abundance? As we saw in in John chapter 1, grace upon grace. Put another way, how do we enter the kingdom of God? And this is the question that Jesus is posed. In fact, this is the question that Jesus poses back in the passage that we'll look at this morning. So if you've got a copy of John's Gospel, feel free to turn. We are going to be in John chapter 3 this morning. But first, can I ask a question? How many of you remember being born? I know some of you have got a very, very good memory. I clearly don't. I can't remember all the announcements we need to make on a Sunday morning. So my memory is not amazing. But uh, but anyone that could remember being born? Because my my dad used to wind us up uh, when we were children. He used to say that he remembered being in the womb, and he remembered being born. And we would, we would obviously call him out on this, say, that's impossible, Dad, there's no way you could remember that. But he would swear blind that he remembers it, and he would go into all this detail, this great painstaking detail of what that experience was like for him. And none of us believed it, uh, but he loved to wind us up anyway. So we're in John chapter 3. And if you know this passage at all, you'll be familiar that this is the introduction of the idea of what it means to be born again. It says, now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you were doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they can't enter a second time into their mother's womb and be born. Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and of the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. And I think Nicodemus asks a legitimate question here. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus. And do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify of what has been seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you have not believed. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. And we'll pause it right there. 
I want to start by asking this question, and this is a question posed through Nicodemus. What are we asking of Jesus? What are we seeking from Jesus? What is it that we want from him? And it starts off by saying this, Jesus, sorry, he came, that is Nicodemus came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. Remember, there are no electric lights. There are no torches, no street lamps. If you come at night, it's dark. And, and it begs the question, why is Nicodemus coming to Jesus in the dark? Is it because he's embarrassed? Is he hoping that the cover of darkness will provide him some sort of anonymity? We've, we've already seen in the passage, he's a Pharisee, he's a member of the, the, the Jewish ruling council. He's obviously an important guy. And it looks like he's embarrassed to come to Jesus with his question. Church, are we embarrassed to be seen with Jesus sometimes? Are we embarrassed to be seen with Jesus? And if so, why is it? I can remember as, you know, becoming a Christian in my, in my later teenage years and, and would blow so hot and cold with my faith in front of other people. There would be moments when I want to tell everyone around me that I belong to Jesus, that I've put my trust in him, that he is the most important thing in my life. And there were other moments in which I was so painfully embarrassed that I couldn't even mention the name of Jesus around people. And, and just back and forth between feeling really confident in my faith and, and who God had called me to be and what he had done for me, and then feeling embarrassed. I've often had to challenge myself with that thought. What is most important to me? Romans 1.16, the Apostle Paul writes to the church, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. That the gospel is powerful. That the gospel carries life-giving transformation. And so often we can be a little bit shy or a little bit embarrassed, or a little bit unsure about its place in our lives. But church, the good news is, is even if you are unsure about faith, even if you are not certain about what it means to follow Jesus, this passage has good news for us. Is that, that it almost invites us to ask, Jesus, I'm intrigued or I'm curious or I'm wanting to take a step closer. I'm wanting to take that step deeper, but I'm not sure and I need a bit of convincing. As Nicodemus comes to Jesus... At night, so that other people won't see what he's doing, but he's still got a question. He's still got something that is motivating to draw him closer to Jesus. And I love that Jesus doesn't turn him away. Now, Jesus doesn't accept him on the terms that he's bringing, but Jesus' desire is to bring him closer. So what are Nicodemus' motives? For whatever reason, he's not wanting to be too closely associated with Jesus. But I think there's more than that. His language is very general. It's a bit non-committal. He says, we know. And you always go ask, well, who's we? Who's we, Nicodemus? We know you're a teacher sent from God. And you wonder, is he, is he not ready yet even to make a personal profession? He needs to kind of soften it. Well, there's, there's some of us, and we've had a chat, and we think this might be the case that you might be from God, actually. But, you know, I'm, I'm still needing a little bit of convincing. 
Jesus here isn't interested in the conversation that Nicodemus has had about him. But he wants to challenge him what his commitment is to him. And it can be so easy to walk this non-committal walk with Jesus. Is we kind of, you know, we know what to say, we know what to do, we kind of know how to show ourselves as looking like a Christian. But sometimes we're just guilty of doing the bare minimum. Church, I want to tell you, what we know about Jesus is not enough to save you. What you know about Jesus is not enough to transform you. Information about Jesus does not automatically equate transformation in Jesus. Who Jesus is matters. Because how you answer that question, truthfully, deep down in who you are, can radically change your life. It's not just about giving the right answer. And I think Nicodemus kind of gives the right answer. He says, you're a teacher from God. You're doing all these miracles. God must be with you. He's not saying anything that is incorrect. But he's not stepping over that line to, to, to acknowledge who Jesus really is. And we can see that by the response that Jesus gives to him. But what I find so encouraging about this, if we fast forward, again, give you a flash forward to the end of, of this series, despite, and you're going to have to excuse me, if I accidentally call Nicodemus Nico, it's because I got bored of writing Nicodemus so many times in my, notes and, in my notes, and that's what I've got here. So we've got, despite Nico's uncertainty and lack of commitment here, what we know is that after the crucifixion, along with another man we'll be introduced to, Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, no longer embarrassed to be associated with Jesus, boldly stands before the Roman governor Pilate, asking for the body of Jesus to ensure he is buried honorably. And so what we get here is he's, he's not got the answers. He's maybe even, we'll see in a moment, asking some of the wrong questions or in the wrong place, but he's on the right track. And church, I want to encourage you this morning, wherever you are in your spiritual journey with Jesus, wherever you are in, in what you are willing to affirm about him, if you are on the right track, Jesus has grace for you. But what I find is interesting is Jesus isn't here to play games with Nicodemus. He's not interested in, in, in kind of being flattered by Nicodemus' words. In fact, if you read the last couple of verses uh, of John chapter 2, uh, you get this incredible statement. Jesus isn't here. Jesus isn't here to rely on the testimony of other people. He's not there to entrust himself to others in that sense. Jesus isn't here to make sure everybody's impressed by him. Jesus is here on mission. And Jesus isn't interested in being useful to Nicodemus here. He's not a political tool to be wielded by the religious elite. Jesus goes straight to the issue. He says, very truly, I tell you. And you'll see he says this three times in, uh, it, just in this passage alone. Uh, he says, in the, in the Greek, it's amen, amen, I say to you. And he's just, it's like he's drawing this huge underline. It's like he's scribbling over his words in highlighter. He's saying, this is the truth. Listen to me now. He says, no one. Guess what the, guess what the Greek word for no one means? It means no one. 
Okay, so there's, there's no caveat here. There's no kind of uh, get-out clause. There's no alternatives. He says no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. If you want to see God's kingdom, it is not a small tweak to your life. It is not an adjustment to your schedule to fit it in. It is not just a bit of God here or there. It is all or it is nothing. That that, that Jesus isn't interested in just having a little bit more of your time. Jesus is interested in radically transforming who you are from the inside out. The kingdom of God is not just. And what's interesting here, this is possibly the only time that John uses this particular expression. You see, the kingdom of God is all Jesus is speaking about in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And yet John takes this different focus on the things that Jesus taught and said, but it can't escape because it's here. The kingdom of God is not just how we get to heaven, but it's how we experience the fullness of heaven here and now. That the kingdom of God is, is God's good and perfect presence ruling and railing, reigning in our lives and our world, and it is starting now. And so born again. And in fact, before, before we get to born again, I want to stop and ask this. What is, what is Jesus asking of us? Nicodemus comes to him, certainly with his own agenda, with his own expectations, with his own belief, and Jesus turns it around very, very quickly. Truly, I tell you, no one can see God's kingdom unless they're born again. And Confusingly, being called a born-again Christian carries interesting connotations. Uh, for some people, it means very opinionated Christians. Uh, for others, it means, have you, have you ever been called, are you one of those happy, clappy Christians? I'm like, it's not, not a description I would personally take, but sure, let's roll with it. Yes, I'd, I'd like to think I'm happy, and on occasion, I clap in church. Let's go with that one. For some people, it's like, oh, well, you're one of those Christians that likes singing, isn't it? Or maybe it's you're one of those Christians that wears socks underneath your sandals. I don't know. But Jesus said there's, there's no such thing as a non-born-again Christian. Jesus doesn't say, truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. But maybe a few of you can get in. Like, you know, we'll, we'll make an exception here. He says, no one, unless they're born again. That, that is the category. That is the only criteria. And the reason that is, is actually really, really good news is because when Nicodemus is told you must be born again, we've got to stop and look at who this guy is. Just, just for a second, because so often we think about, you know, who, well, who needs to be born again? Who is it that needs uh, rebirth? Who is it needs that regeneration? We think, well, bad people, right? People who've done terrible things, people who've you know, committed terrible deeds, who have mistreated people, people who need their life to be turned around. We think those are the people that need to be born again, right? Those are the people that would be benefiting from the fullness of Jesus transforming miraculous power in their life. And yet here is Nicodemus. Clearly an older guy. I think we can kind of see that from the passage. He kind of goes, you know, how can you enter your mother's womb a second time? Uh, if, you know, how can you do that if you're old? And we kind of see that the expectation is if he's on the Sanhedrin, he would have had to have been at least in his 40s, if not older. I'm not saying 40 years old. But again, he's definitely beyond that. He would have been successful. Almost certainly this guy would have been wealthy within his community. He would have had influence 
He was a prominent teacher, a member of the ruling council in Israel. So he's influential, he's educated, he's respected. And this is the man that Jesus tells needs to be born again. This this is where that entire expression comes from. Jesus is telling an upstanding, wealthy, influential, well-off, religious individual, you need to be born again. Not anybody. In fact, if we look at the next chapter, Anil is sharing this next week, so I don't want to steal his thunder. But, but in the next chapter, Jesus deals with this woman. She's a Samaritan, so she's an outcast from a Jewish perspective anyway. She's a woman in a society that, that prioritizes and, 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 and honored men over women. She's an adulterer. She's got, a, she's got a reputation even within her village. We see she comes to the well at midday because nobody else is there because obviously for whatever reason, people don't want to associate her. She's a social outcast. Is this the woman that Jesus says, you need to be born again? No. He says, I long to give you living water. When, when Jesus encounters people on the, on the social extremes, it's not all browbeating. You need to turn your life around. You're a terrible person. You need the gospel. You need to be born again. It's, listen, this is what I have for you. When Jesus encounters the moral and the upstanding and the together and the religious, Jesus says, you need to be born again. You need to start everything over with a new identity and perspective. And there's this, this beautiful uh, paradoxical understanding within the Gospels. Is when Jesus comes to the people that you think need religious, religion most, Jesus has something to offer them. When Jesus encounters the people of his, of his day who, who would seem to be the, having the most in common with him in terms of living upright, righteous lives, J- Jesus has the most critical things to say about them. If you think you've got it all together... Jesus' message for you is, is, is here's, here's a surprise. God isn't interested in everything you have to offer. He's interested in you coming to him on his terms, not yours. And if you are as far away from God as you possibly can be, do you know what Jesus' invitation is? This is what I've got for you. This is what I want to bring into your life. This is what I long for you and for your future and for your hope. Did the woman at the well need to be born again? Yes, of course. Absolutely. Jesus says no one is seeing the kingdom of God without it. Would Jesus have offered Nicodemus living water if he asked for it? Absolutely. But so often Jesus sees people differently than we do. So differently, in fact, than many Christians have, uh, have done and seem to do. That it is the religious, the put-together ones, the ones that, it, that, that seem to have everything figured out that Jesus insists must be born again. I love the idea. We, we all come to God the same. We don't bring anything. We don't offer anything to that equation. We come to God to the same. But he comes to us as individuals. Is the response that the woman in the well gets is unique to her situation. And what Jesus gives to Nicodemus is exactly what he needs to hear in order to see the kingdom of God. When Jesus is asking, what Jesus is asking for is not a part of your life. He's not saying to Nicodemus, you're successful, you're accomplished, you're wise and you're learned. You're doing a great job. All you need to do now to be a true leader of God's people is just a little tweak here to accommodate Jesus into your theology. Maybe, maybe a little adjustment here to your practices include a little bit of this here, a little bit of that there. 
That's not what he tells me. He says, you must be born again. It's not take this course, believe this truth, add this extra action or good work to your life. Following Jesus, seeing his kingdom at work is not about adding a little bit here or there, but about a complete renewal, about a brand new start. None of what Nicodemus has achieved gets him any closer to God than the invitation that Jesus is offering. And that is true for each and every one of us. So what does Jesus invite us to? That invitation to be born again. I've got a slightly embarrassing picture because not only do I embarrass easy. Do you know what? I just, when I got this picture, my mother sent this to me not long after um, my, my youngest was born. Just one of those kind of, oh, doesn't she look like you? And the first thing I thought is, do you remember in those days when you took a picture and you didn't know what the picture was going to look like until you had the film developed? And so if your eyes were closed, you were stuck with that picture forever. Genuinely, that was the first thing that I thought when she sent this to me. But there's me with my mum. That is little baby Luke. Uh, very, very ginger in that photograph. Um, Yep, let's move on from that one. But when you are, when you are first born, I just love this idea, when, you, when you're, you're, you're born, when you hold a newborn baby, there's something incredible about little ones where it's just, just anything, anything. You could be anybody. You could be anything. You could go anywhere. Anything could you, What on earth is possible? And Jesus uses this idea. You've got to, you've got to, you need a do-over. Just as you've started once and you brought nothing in with you, you had, no, uh, you had nothing to offer, you had nothing to, to bring, you, you didn't have any status or, or ability, you weren't there kind of going, well, I'm, I'm this little baby genius and I'm here, you know, you're so glad that I've arrived because I'm going to change the world now that I'm here. No, just a little, little baby. Nicodemus here, a Pharisee, a member of the Sanhedrin, wealthy, educated, influential. And I wrote, I use my journal, guys. I wrote in my journal as I was looking through this passage. And I said, I find myself asking, have I built a life? Have I built my identity? Have I built my respectability on myself? Is it on my possessions, my learning, or my success? Do I look to these things for my salvation? Do I look to these things for purpose, value, security, and hope. And I would ask you, what are you putting your hope in? What, what gives your life purpose and value? What are your hopes? Because when Jesus says we need to be born again, it is a radical and complete restart. He says flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You shouldn't be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound but cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. It is not something that you simply rationalize yourself into, but something that is genuinely a work of God in your life. There's an interesting translation issue here in that wind and spirit in Greek is exactly the same word. And so how you choose to translate the first part of this as the wind and the second part of the spirit is a complicated issue. But Jesus uses this word to link 
linked together to, to say that the Spirit of God works for our salvation like the wind. You can't predict where it's going. There's no formula about it. You don't know what's going to happen next or, or what is going on. What I find so radical about Jesus' challenge to Nicodemus, he says, you are better off starting from scratch, but starting in God's kingdom than starting from everything that you have built on your own. That you need to be born again into a new identity, a new family, a new way of living. That we don't just add a Jesus-shaped part to our, li- to our lives. We don't simply show up in church and think, well, there we go, that must be it. Heaven forbid we think we just listen to a bunch of sermons and go through a bunch of rituals and assumes that that makes us born again. We mentioned it last Sunday. It is, it is not about ritual, but it must be about rebirth. We talked last Sunday, it's, not, it's, it's relationship over ritual. That ritual only works if it gets us into relationship. That we can go through all the formulas, all the stand-up, sit-down. We can have smells, bells, and everything in between. But if it doesn't genuinely bring us into relationship with Jesus, it is worth nothing. And Jesus is saying to Nicodemus here, your rituals won't get you to God. Rebirth will get you to God. It is about a life of transformation. In John 3.16, it says, as you probably already know, God so loved the world that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. And one of the limitations of the English language here, or, or at least my understanding of the limitations of the English language, is it's difficult to convey sometimes the true, the true intent of the Greek here. And the word believe, so God so loved the world that whoever believes in him For those of you who love uh, the linguistics of things, this is the present active participle. And what that means is, another way of translating that to fully flesh that out is, God so loved the world that whoever goes on believing in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. It's not a one-off action. It's not a one-off decision that we made years and years, some of us decades ago, to be a follower of Jesus. And that somehow kind of ticked that born-again box and off we go. To believe in Jesus is not merely belief about facts in him. It is to place your trust in all that he said and did. It is, it is effectively to bet your life on it. Not just a part, not kind of holding a little bit back here and kind of all of it. It is to go on believing. This is we're born again. It is to go on being made new. It is to, to live in that active reality that we are no longer who we were. We are being made into something new. And my last question to ask us this is, is well, well, how must we respond? Jesus says, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. And this is a difficult one to understand, and there's a whole host of varying interpretations. I'll give you the most popular ones, and then I'll give you my favorite. It says some people consider this to be a reference to, to the waters of baptism, that there needs to be this, uh, this act of repentance and this commitment to Jesus, and this new life in the Spirit. 
And it looks to connect uh, the, the activity, the action of placing trust in Jesus in a visual way to regeneration, to being born again in the Spirit. And, and I think the problem with that is it's a little bit formulaic. I think, I think, again, it's a little bit kind of, you know, do this ritual, get this result. And there are plenty of instances in, 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 in the New Testament and in history that for you to be born again, for you to experience that, that regeneration of, uh, of your spirit, it doesn't always come after baptism. In fact, typically it would come before. Some people have said that the waters refer to, to natural birth, to the amniotic fluids that we pass through when we're born. And so, uh, so what Jesus is doing is contrasting natural birth with supernatural birth. And I think there's a bit of, bit of credence to this one. He's saying, you know, you've got to, but then at some point it's a little redundant, is it? You've got to be born the normal way and then you can be born the spiritual way. And we're, all, we're all born the normal way in that respect. But what I think is really significant here and what I think is a little bit telling is in verse 10, you'll, say, you'll, you'll hear Jesus respond to Nicodemus when he's like, well, how can this be? And, and he says, you are Israel's teacher. And you do not understand these things. And for me, that, that implies that, that, that Jesus expected Nicodemus to have the information available to him to answer that question. That if he is Israel's teacher, Jesus' assumption is, is as the teacher of Israel, you have access to the information that will give you answers here. And so we've got to look to the Scriptures to see, well, what is Jesus getting at when he's talking about this birth by water and the Spirit? And so whilst this isn't the most popular view, it's one that I find very interesting. And again, I've mentioned it before, and I think it's throughout John's Gospel, these references to the Exodus event, when God led his people by his Spirit out of slavery, through the waters, and into new life and promise. And I wonder, could Jesus be using Exodus imagery here? We've seen it already. I've started to write down in my journal. Anytime I see a reference to Exodus, a little EX next to the verse, just, just as part of my own study and my own reflection, it's, and it's there again and again and again. We saw it in John 1 when it talked about Jesus being like the tabernacle. He came to dwell amongst us, tabernacle amongst us. But this idea, and, and, and when you think about the, the imagery here, that Jesus is one greater than Moses, that as if Moses was the one who came uh, to offer new life to God's people, to lead them out of slavery into deliverance, who provided, who, who was the, the broker of the, new, uh, of the covenant with God's people, that they were led through the waters. And the, and er, the early Christians spent so much time linking the idea of, uh, of the, the exodus through the Red Sea and baptism, having a, a shared symbolic meaning. But led by God's Spirit Himself, led God, by God's presence, given a new identity. And one other possible offering here. If you, for some of you, you'll be familiar with, uh, with Ezekiel 37 and the Valley of Dry Bones. And some people have said more, more than just an Exodus example, he might be pointing Nicodemus to, to this passage as well. And if I take Exodus 37 verses 12 to 14, make a note of that. Next to, next to verse 10, write Exodus 37, 12 to 14. You can come back to it at your own convenience. But it says this, this is God speaking to the prophet Ezekiel. And there's this, been, this, been, this, this valley full of, of dried bones, just a, a valley of death and decay. There, there's nothing living there. It is dry and it is dead. 
And God tells the prophet to prophesy, prophesy, speak life over this valley. And this wind begins to fill, begins to to knit back these bodies together, brings new life into this dry valley. And from verse 12, he says, Therefore prophesy to them and say, This is what the sovereign Lord says. My people, I am going to open your graves and bring you out from them. I will bring uh, bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my spirit in you and you will live and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that the Lord has spoken, and I have done it, declares the Lord. And that imagery of, of, of new life coming from, from death, new birth coming out of a place of impossibility, and it coming by the Spirit of God being placed in the lives of his people. And so what do we do? I think the first thing, there's, there's the, the, the motif of repentance here is is consistent throughout Jesus' teaching. That idea of, of, of turning around. Repentance was central uh, to what Jesus called people to do, to leave behind the old in order to enter into the new. And thinking about that Exodus parallel as well, God called his people to leave Egypt and become the people he'd called them. Church, I'd ask, what is preventing you from following Jesus into that new birth, into that new life, deeper and deeper into the abundance of what he's calling you to? What is it it that there needs to be that 180 degree turning away from in order to follow after him? And the second thing is this, is, is, is faith. And Jesus uses this bizarre and obscure story from the book of Numbers. If you want to put next to, um, to, next to verse 14, write Numbers 2, 4 to 9. You can come back and read it later, but I'll share it now. It says in verse 14, just as, Moses said, uh, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. And you think, what on earth is Jesus talking about? Like Jesus is picking like the, the most obscure story from the Old Testament. It's like, this, this one is so random, it doesn't even, get, doesn't even get into Sunday school, right? Like, no one preaches on this one because it's, it's just weird. Basically, what is happening is the Israelites are grumbling. Go figure, it happens a lot. They're complaining, they're impatient with God, they're, they're, they're lashing out against God and against Moses. And then all of a sudden, there's this encounter with these venomous snakes that start biting them. Uh, the venom is deadly, and, and so you've got all these Israelites there who one second were complaining and shouting at Moses and God, and then snakes turn up and they start dying. I don't know why they don't teach that in Sunday school. <laughs> and bizarrely, God instructs Moses to make a bronze snake. It might have been brass. I don't know. I don't know about my ancient metals. Uh, stick it on a pole. And God says, whoever has been bitten by a snake, but looks up to this snake on a pole, will live and will not die. And it's a really, when you take it in context of the Exodus story, God leading his people out, God you know, wandering around the wilderness, preparing them for the promised land, it's a really weird story. And yet Jesus latches onto this imagery as he's talking about new life. He says, just as that bronze snake was lifted up into the air, and everybody who looked at it was saved, he says, so too will the Son of Man. And Son of Man is Jesus Jesus' favorite expression to describe himself. We'll get into that another day, I'm sure. But Jesus uses this, this, this Old Testament, heavily prophetic 
name to describe himself. He says, the Son of Man must be lifted up. He says, everyone who believes may have eternal life. Just as he is lifted up like that, that snake in the desert, anyone who looks to him will see salvation. Church, can I encourage you? In the, in the coming weeks, look to Jesus for new life and transformation. Friends, if you feel you've stagnated in your spirit, in your walk with Jesus, in life in general, look to Jesus. If you feel crippled by guilt, if your mistakes look bigger than anything else into your life, look to Jesus. If you're desperately seeking direction, look to Jesus. And that instruction to to look up and see in faith that he provides new life, eternal life. That that act of being born again is an active and ongoing process. That it's not something that happens just once, but something we engage and enter in day by day. And the way that we do that primarily is we stop and we look to Jesus. Church, can I encourage you in the week to come, spend time in this scripture. Look to Jesus. Don't worry, you, you can read ahead. I give you permission. You don't have to wait until we've covered that passage in church. Look to Jesus. Can I, we're going to respond in, in, in worship in just a moment, but I'd, I'd love to pray for us all. Can we stand if we're able? Jesus, I thank you that the, the invitation you give us is not based on our ability, it's not based on our experiences, it's not based on our past, no matter how good, no matter how bad. That Jesus, you invite us to come to you as we are. Wherever we are on that journey, whatever we know, whatever we don't know. That your invitation is the same to every one of us. To come to you for new life. To come to you to be born again. To come to you to see God's kingdom alive and active and at work in our life and the lives of those around us. To Jesus in this moment, we're going to respond to that. And church, my, my encouragement to you this morning, my challenge to you this morning is this, is wherever you are on your journey right now, no matter the highs or the lows, whether you feel close to Jesus or far away from him, whether like Nicodemus, you're not even sure uh, where you sit on that spectrum at the moment, but you've got questions, you're intrigued. Jesus, I thank you that, that you invite each and every one of us into relationship with you, that it is an offer of grace. That it's not about what we do, it's not about how good we can be or, or, or the efforts and the energies that we muster. But you say, come and know me. Come and receive good things from me. Receive life and life abundantly. Come and receive rest and peace and hope. And so, Lord, this morning, each, each one of us, wherever we are, have the opportunity to respond to that invitation. That, Jesus, you would, you would say to each one of us this morning, look to me. 
Don't look to the world around you for answers. Don't look to the things that everyone else seems to be looking at to give meaning and significance. Look to me. Look to me to lead you. Look to me for guidance. Look to me for hope. Look to me for promise. Look to me for joy. Look to me for peace. Jesus, that we would put our trust in you this morning. And that Jesus, as we do, we would begin to see the kingdom of God in all its fullness, not just in our lives, but in the lives of those around us, the communities around us, and into all eternity. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to find out more about us, please visit our website, capcitycardiff.org.uk.